Take out a copy of God's Word and please turn in it to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 10 through 7 this morning, page 896 in the Pew Bible. John 10, only verses 7 through 10. Why only four verses this morning? Especially when two of those four verses basically say the same thing. Well, it's because Christ, of course. It's because of the person of Christ. It's because of the preciousness of the person of Christ. Charles Spurgeon was the greatest Baptist preacher who ever lived, at least in the running for the greatest preacher who ever lived, after Christ and Paul, of course. Uh, But the first time that Spurgeon ever preached, he was tricked into it. One day, uh, after recently being saved, he was asked to travel to a town, and he reports the words like this, For a young man was to preach there who was not much used to services and very likely would be glad of company. And so Spurgeon went, assuming that his traveling companion would be the one preaching, only to find out at the last minute that Spurgeon was the young man, recently saved, who didn't have much experience, but was going to preach and needed company. The other guy was the company, Spurgeon was the preacher, and they didn't tell Spurgeon that. That's my nightmare, by the way. It was a trap. The whole thing was a trap. But so, unprepared, at the last minute, the young man Spurgeon made a decision that would set the tone for his ministry for decades to come. He chose, in his first sermon, to preach on the sweetness and love of Jesus Christ from 1 Peter 2.7, which the King James translates as, Unto you, therefore, which believe that Christ is precious. And then looking back 20 years later, Spurgeon would write, I am sure that that contains the marrow of what I have always taught in the pulpit from that day until now. Many years later, again, in another sermon, Spurgeon talks about the very root of the matter, the vital point, the mark of a Christian, the true test. What is it? He says, if you cannot say Jesus is precious to me, You do not know God. Spurgeon argues that unless Christ is dear to you, precious to you, then you do not and cannot really know him. For faith in Christ always results in affection for Christ and adoration of Christ. Faith is that which lays hold of Christ. Christ is the perfect, most beautiful, all-glorious person. So that faith necessarily is going to result in great love and cherishing and affection for Christ. Is Christ precious to you? And honestly, if not, at least Spurgeon argues that you may not know him. For Christianity is Christ. And the Christ of Christianity, the Christ of scriptures, the Christ of history and reality is so gloriously good that you cannot know him without loving him and treasuring him. And so the whole point of my preaching, Mike's preaching of this pulpit, my whole job is to seek to lay open Christ and to make him known in all his beauty and glory and goodness and grace. There's a difference in preaching about Christ and preaching Christ. We want to, along with Paul, preach Christ crucified. That's always the goal. And aim. Though I'm still learning and often failing, but, but Christ is to be the great subject of this pulpit always. To proclaim him and all that he is and does. And so when we come to texts like these, in which Christ so clearly and kindly reveals to us who he is and all that goodness and grace, we need to pause. But we need to look long and linger. We know that much of John's gospel is built around the claims of Christ. The I am claims of Christ. We've recently seen the big one in chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am, period. In other words, I am Yahweh. I am God himself come in the flesh. But then we're also seeing that there are these seven other I am statements. Not I am, period, but I am followed by a predicate by something that's giving us more content and information. And many of them are well-known and well-loved. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. But this week, I am the door of the sheep. Eh, you know, let's be honest. 
That's probably the I am statement that we are least excited about and least encouraged by. I am a door for sheep. Well, let's see if we can better understand this one today. Let's see if we can change that a little bit. Let's see if we can see the glory of Christ revealed in the metaphor of the door. Okay, keep this in your mind as we go. Is Christ precious to you? If by the grace of God, there's only like four more of those to fall, so don't worry, they'll be, they'll be done soon. If, if by the grace of God, you can see Christ as the door, he will be more precious to you. So I have three simple points this morning. The big idea is simple and clear. Christ is the only door to life. No Christ, no life, no Christ, only death. We're going to get there through three points. Point number one, Christ is the only way in. Then point number two, if he's the only way in, well, then any other way is death. And then finally, we'll close with point number three and see that Christ is abundant life. Not brings it, not shows the way to it. Christ is abundant life. Is Christ precious to you? Let's look at him, both as our good shepherd and our door, our way in. John chapter 10. Uh, It's been two weeks. I want to read all of 121 again. I'm probably going to read all of 121 four or five times. But it's so good that this is not time wasted. We're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 10, but let's situate it in the context of this whole Good Shepherd discourse. So I'm picking up and reading in John 10, verse 1. Pay attention. This is the voice of the Good Shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, um, uh, by the door, but cl- who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? If you would... Bow with me. Let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, um, so now we pray. Show us Christ. Show us Christ, the good shepherd of our souls. Show us Christ as the door, as the entrance into life, as life himself. Father, we desperately need your help for this time. I desperately need Uh, Your help, I do not have the skill or the ability to capture hearts or to keep attention or to reveal uh, Christ in his glory. But Father, you by your spirit have all power and all ability. And so Father, we ask that you would help the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help the hearing of your word. Father, make Christ precious to us. 
Father, give us a great love for Jesus Christ. Father, I want to pray especially for people in here who are visiting, especially maybe anyone in here who, who likes the idea of Christ, who believes some things about Christ. Father, I pray that you would help them to love Christ and to find life in Christ. Father, only you can do these things uh, through your word. And so we ask now that you would. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, Christ is the only way in. Not that complicated. Verse seven. Remember, Jesus is truly, truly. Amen, amen in the Greek. Meaning, this is a statement of solemn significance. This is a statement of absolute truth and trustworthiness. Pay attention. Listen to this. I am the door of the sheep. So let's pause there for a second because it's been two weeks and let's review where we are. We made the case last time um, that chapter 10 is directly connected to chapter 9. In chapter 8, at the end, in 859, Jesus has just revealed himself as I am, as Yahweh God himself, and then we've seen him immediately move from that revelation of his glory to this healing and helping of a miserable and suffering man born blind. Jesus restores this man's physical sight as a sign of what he has really come to do. Not to make the blind see, but to make the dead live. And so he not only heals the man physically, but he heals him spiritually. He makes this man that was dead in his trespasses and sins alive. And then that man rightly responds to Jesus. He sees Jesus. And he believes in Jesus. And he worships Jesus. The blind see. That's the point of the story. But we also saw that the same story is also about how those who see or those who think that they see, are blind. The Pharisees see the miraculous healing, but instead of rejoicing with and for the man, instead of seeing the goodness and glory of Christ, they reject both. These supposed religious leaders, these men who are supposed to be the good shepherds of God's sheep, instead cast the sheep out. So they've proven themselves to be bad shepherds, false shepherds. And it is into that context that Jesus begins to teach in chapter 10, revealing himself as the one true and good shepherd of the sheep. We saw last time that Jesus is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, where God calls out against the shepherds of Israel who have been caring for themselves and feeding themselves instead of the sheep at the expense of the sheep. And so God says he's against the bad and false shepherds. And then God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And then now here in John 10 is Jesus Christ, Yahweh, God himself, claiming to be the good shepherd. He is God himself come to rescue his sheep, his people in fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. It's a beautiful metaphor. Shepherds care for sheep. We saw last time. The six things that Christ, as the shepherd, does for us, his sheep. The shepherd owns the sheep. He calls the sheep. He knows the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He leads the sheep. And he is with the sheep. That is comprehensive care. That is he. Uh, That is where you will find comfort. I mentioned this in Sunday school. Uh, I'll announce it again afterwards, but we do want to uh, tell you that we're beginning the book of Isaiah next week in Sunday school. We have finished the 1689. We want to get into the Old Testament. Isaiah is a big book, so we're going to focus on the second part, the salvation and restoration part, which opens in chapter 40, verse 1, with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What a start. What a word from God himself. Comfort. God wants to comfort his people. Then verse 9. Twice we read good news. Good news. What is it? The very next words. Behold your God. I love that. The good news, good news is God himself. It's, it's behold him, see him. He is the good news. Well, who is he? What is he like? What does he do? Isaiah 40 verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So Isaiah starts with he's a mighty God. He is a powerful God. He is able, but he's also verse 11. This is what I'm driving at. This is 
why we're here. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Behold your God, he's powerful, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's our God. That's the good shepherd. What a beautiful picture. He tends, he gathers in his own arms, he carries in his bosom, he gently leads. This is how the God of all power is disposed toward and acts towards those who are his sheep. It is a beautiful metaphor. Jesus is saying, yes, I am God, the God of all power and glory, and this is what I am like. This is how I treat and care for those who are mine. This is how I will lead them. We all need leadership and authority. Our culture increasingly tells us to hate and cast off all leadership and authority. But what if it's a leadership and authority like this? What if this is the nature of God's leadership and authority? For our good, for our comfort, comfort, for our care and concern. Jesus is the good shepherd. Know Christ as the good shepherd. There is so much comfort to be found in understanding Christ as the good shepherd of your soul. See him as precious there. But that's next week. (laughs) We're going to come back to that next week in verse 11. We're doing that beautiful metaphor then. But we've seen how Christ masterfully mixes his metaphors. Don't tell me not to mix metaphors. Christ does it. We love Christ as the good shepherd, but what about Christ as the door of the sheep? First, what does this metaphor mean? Well, it's not not complicated. We all understand doors. Uh, We all entered into this space by a door. We all enter into places by doors many times a day. Doors are the means through which we enter. Christ is the means through which we enter. Through doors, you enter a room. Through Christ, you enter life. It's that simple. That's all that Christ is claiming here. You can't miss what he's claiming. But you also can't miss that it is a huge claim. He's saying the same thing. He'll say even more clearly in the better known 14 verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Christ the door. He is the way in. The way to the Father is only through Him. And it's obvious that Christ is making an exclusive claim here. If no one comes to the Father except through Him, then there is no other way to the Father. There's no other way in. And so, let's be careful in our understanding of the metaphor of the door. Christ is not like the doors in this room. There are multiple doors in this room, most of you entered in through the... Is that the front door or the back door? Is that, is that the front? Right? I guess the, you, most of you entered in through the front door. But this is the front of the sanctuary. Jeremy kind of came in through here. I thought there were three doors. There's a fourth door over here. So there's two back doors here. But then there's also a side door here. Some of you try to sneak in through the side door. By the way, you can't sneak in through the side door, right? It's here. We all see you coming in through the side door. So the point is, door, 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 door. I don't know if that one even works or not. Multiple doors. Christ is not like the doors in this room. The life that he offers is not like this room. The life that he offers is like the nursery right over here through these doors. Maybe the most important room in this building, right? Possessing and protecting the most important thing that we have in this building. Babies. Life. About to be swelled with the ranks of three more soon uh, to join them. That's the room of life. And there is one door into that room. I know it's a double door, but there's one door into that room. There is only one way in. That's Christ. He's that kind of door. Into the most important place. Into life. The nursery door is an exclusive door into a precious place. Christ is an exclusive door into the most precious place. And that's what we're going to do in point three. But for now, part of what we're seeing here is that the preciousness of Christ is found in the uniqueness of Christ. Uh, People today 
all rail against any claim of exclusivity. They want there to be any way. They want the way to be an easy way. They want the way to be whatever uh, way they want to come in. But we just read Matthew 7. What if the way that the world wants is not reality? What if that's actually not the way that things are? What if Christ's words there in Matthew 7 are true? Consider verse 13 again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so if you combine Matthew there in, John, in Matthew 7 and John here in chapter 10, Jesus says, enter by the gate and I am the door. Enter and enter by me. Only me. Nice and simple so far. Pretty clear. Again, but also pretty confrontational and controversial. Jesus makes big, bold claims. They are not hard to understand. I am the only way in. I am God. And thus, I'm the only way to God. And then as Jesus is prone to do, he doesn't back down. We tend to make big claims of qualify. Like, whoa, no, hold on. Don't misunderstand. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't qualify. He doesn't ease up. He doubles down and presses his provocative point even further, making it both more clear and more controversial. As we read the very next verse in Matthew 7, after the narrow gate, Jesus follows up in verse 15 saying, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So the gate is narrow. Make sure and enter it. It's the only way to life. Thus also be very careful about who you follow, about who you listen to. Be very careful of false prophets and false shepherds. If Christ is the door, if he is the only way in, then there is nothing more important than making sure that you have entered through him. And that includes making sure that you are not following anyone else or seeking to enter in any other way. For, point number two, any other way is death. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Who's, who's Jesus talking about there? Who are the all who come before me? We have to read that all in context, right? We, we, we know that he can't be speaking, for example, of John the Baptist, who literally goes before Jesus, right? who Jesus himself says that none greater have been born of women. He can't be talking about Moses, who he's just told us wrote about him, or of Abraham, before whom I am. Right? No, he's not literally talking about all, as in every single person who came before him. He's talking to all who stand before him. He's talking, again, about the Pharisees, having just cast out one of his sheep, and all that they represent. They, and what they represent, are the thieves and the robbers. The Pharisees are also the paradigm. They are the, the representatives and examples of what it means to be a thief and a robber. I don't think there's any distinction between the words thief and robber there. I think it's just emphasis by repetition. We know the first word, kleptes, from the verb klepto, to steal. Right? We still call people prone to thieving today. Kleptos, that's this word. My children are candy kleptos. Uh, they are also phone kleptos. Right? Watch out. Help us out. We're trying to minimize screens. Don't give them your phones or leave the phones unattended around Nora or Tessa. Um, but, but those are cute kleptos. These are not. Because look at verse 10. Verse 10 further clarifies the true nature of these individuals. The thief comes only to steal. Again, same word. The kleptase comes only to kleptos. But what really is the big deal? Right? Just, just a little thieving. Keep reading. To steal and kill, and destroy. So Jesus says, I am the door, I am the way in, all others then are thieves and robbers. All others are not a way in. If I'm the only way, anything else is not a way, and if they are not a way in, then they are ultimately only a way to death. And again, let's make sure we don't just pick on the Pharisees here. They're just the paradigm, the example, the model, the pattern. I argued last time that a false shepherd, 
Now Jesus is calling them here thieves and robbers. Same thing. He's talking about the same stuff. Uh, a false shepherd, a thief, a robber is anyone or anything that turns your attention away from Christ. Anything that, that draws you away from the good shepherd and the only door. And so every religious teacher, every philosophy, every worldview, everything that does not direct people to Christ, that does not point people to the true and living Christ of scriptures, that does not lead people through that Christ, that does not glorify Christ, is a thief and a robber. And so what are the thieves and the robbers that you are willingly and knowingly allowing and inviting into your life? I don't know anything about investing. I am financially challenged. I didn't buy any Bitcoin, so I didn't lose all the money when it all collapsed this week. So uh, at least I got that right. Uh, I'm joking. Derek, help me with my investing. Um, but I thought that I had a great illustration here. But in the course of coming up with it, I discovered that Bernie Madoff died last year. I, didn't, I missed that. I didn't know that. But just pretend that he didn't. Uh, he's one of our own, by the way. He's, a, he's Queens, born and bred. He's, he's one of ours. Um, I couldn't think of any other well-known examples of absurd fraud. Uh, but Madoff is known as the architect of the greatest Ponzi scheme in history. He stole upwards of $20 billion from people and ended up costing people upwards of $65 billion. That has been proven without a doubt in the court of law. He has been convicted. I know that he is a thief and a robber. Thus, it would have been quite foolish last year had I decided to pop down. The prison is actually in Butner, North Carolina. It's not far from where I went to seminary. It would have been very foolish had I gone there to give Madoff a check for all my admittedly little money and said, well, here you go, Bernie. Can you, can you take care of this for me? That'd be dumb. Why would I willingly entrust all that I have to a known thief and robber? Why are you maybe willingly entrusting all that you have, your very life and soul, to known thieves and robbers. See, anything that is not Christ, anything that draws you to it instead of Christ, anything that sets itself up as life and joy that is not Christ is a thief and a robber. And Jesus tells us very clearly that it, whatever it is, will ultimately only steal and kill and destroy. Death. Death is the result of all that is opposed to the Christ who is life. Again, we're going to see this a lot in Isaiah. Come to Sunday school. But Isaiah talks a lot about idolatry. And it very helpfully reveals to us the true nature of idolatry. Flip there real quick. Isaiah 44, page 605. I want to show you a few passages that really challenge me and that I kind of try to keep in mind. Isaiah 44, page 605. I'm going to give you three passages, three different places. I encourage you to jot these down and then come back to them and consider them kind of throughout the week. Isaiah 44. Remember, Jesus is talking about thieves and robbers. I am applying that to anything that draws you away from Christ. Anything that draws your attention and affection away from Christ. And this is what idolatry is. We need to be aware of what it is. How prone we are to it. And how deadly it is. Isaiah 44 is one of the great passages on idolatry. Look at verse 9. This is significant. Verse 9 says... All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Look at verse 10. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Many times throughout this book, God will make it clear that idols are nothing. Note that in verse 9, he doesn't say there that idols are nothing. He says that all who fashion idols are nothing. Right? He's saying that you give yourself to nothing, you become nothing. You give your attention and affection to nothing, you become nothing. This is the basic biblical principle, that we become what we behold. God then goes on to mock those who make and bow down to idols. Those who take a tree, and down in verse 16, it says half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. And the rest of it, uh, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. That's crazy, right? You take a piece of wood and you cook with part of it. 
and then you worship the other part of it. Crazy. We all do it. Flip to your left. Flip to Psalm 115, page 510. Just giving you a few key idolatry passages. Idols as thieves and robbers. That's what we're doing. Psalm 115, page 510. In verses 4 through 7, we see that idols, the work of human hands, have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, and so on. Again, they are nothing and do nothing. Same as Isaiah. Look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And that's the same as Isaiah 44. The idols are nothing. They do nothing. You give yourself to nothing, you become nothing. You give your a primary and ultimate attention and affection to nothing, you become nothing. One more. 2 Kings 17. Further to your left. 323. 2 Kings 17. 323. That's a heavy chapter. You see it there in the middle. Uh, the heading tells us, what's this chapter about? The fall of Israel. Well, why did Israel fall? Well, look at the next heading, just one verse below it. Exile because of idolatry. Israel is idolatrous. Israel falls. This happened, the end of Israel, great death and destruction. Verse 7, look at verse 7, 2 Kings 17, 7. For... The people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, skipped down, and had feared other gods. Verse 12 tells us very clearly they served idols. Now look at verse 15. This is unsettling. Right, this, I spend some time on this every time I read it. 2 Kings 17, 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. Here it is. They went after false idols. And became false. They went after false idols and became themselves false. That's sobering. Give yourself to that which is false, become false. Give yourself an affection to that which is false and become false. We become what we behold. This is the deadly danger of idolatry. And just in case we're tempted to let ourselves off the hook, well, I don't bow down to any statues of stone or wood. I mean, don't forget that idolatry is so much more than that. Our problem is not uh, statue idols, but heart idols. Not physical idols, but spiritual idols. An idol, to be clear, is anything that we love more than Jesus. I mean books? I mean running? I mean your family? You mean you're preaching? Anything that you love more than Jesus. An idol is a God replacement, which can be anything. An idol is, is trusting anything more than God. It is giving your most attention and chief affection to anything other than God. And we are experts at this. As Calvin has famously said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We just make them. We just churn them out. We can take anything and turn it into an idol. Who do you love? What are you beholding? What are you giving your attention and your affection to? And that, that has huge impacts. Influence is everything. Psalm 1, the first psalm, is all about influence. Read Psalm 1 and live accordingly. A psalm 1 is so important. What are you giving your attention and affection to? Listen, this is why my children will never be on TikTok, ever, under my roof, ever. They will never have access to YouTube to watch stupid, asinine things just at their will, swallowing through and looking at dumb uh, stuff. Because we become what we behold. We give ourselves to that which is worthless, and we are flooded with worthlessness. Your attention is everything. What are you giving your attention and affection to? Yes, I know that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees here. I know that he's talking about false teachers. We talked a lot about that last time. Be wary. Hate that which is false. Run from any teaching that draws you away from Christ. Anything that in any way calls into question Christ or his word. Straight, Satan's strategy from the beginning. Did God really say? You know how much preaching there is 
right now that consists of little more than, well, you know, did God really say? Like just kind of like subtly introducing doubt into various things that are clear in God's word. Deconstructing is a famous word right now. There are Christians actually trying to reconstruct the deconstruct word and, and redeem it and use it. Uh, did God really say? No, flee these false teachers that subtly but savagely draw you away from Christ, that introduce doubt into your mind about his word. But I'm making the case that this applies more broadly. I want you to see how insidious idolatry is and how deceitful our heart is. All who came before Jesus are thieves and robbers. All that comes before Jesus is a thief and a robber. Because anything that draws you away from him is only and ultimately death. If he is the only way in, then any other way is death. And we have to be aware of how many and how broad those other ways are. We have to be aware of how we are prone to be drawn away from Jesus. Again, what are your thieves and robbers? What is it that tends to capture your attention and affection and compete with Christ? Is Christ precious to you? Is he what gets your attention and affection? What are you giving yourself to? What are you beholding? Is it Christ or is it death? Because anything apart from Christ is death. And that's because of point number three. That's because Christ is abundant life. And I originally had worded this point. Christ came to give abundant life. That's what he says. That's true. Then I changed it to Christ is the way to abundant life. Again, that's, that's true. But I want to emphasize that Christ is himself abundant life. I, I think that's what he's ultimately driving at and saying. I think that that's what we often miss. This can help us see the true preciousness of Christ. Isn't life precious? What if Christ is life? Here we're going to see his preciousness. And point number three is also going to help us better understand point number two. Why is anything else death? Because Christ is life. Why is anything else so bad? Because Christ is so good. Look at verse 9. The second, I am the door. Now he gives us more. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. There it is. There's the life. There's the seventh thing that the shepherd does for the sheep. The shepherd owns, calls, knows, feeds, leads, is with the sheep. The shepherd saves the sheep. And that sounds pretty good if we read it in light of what we've already read in the first half of the following verse 10, that the thieves come to steal and kill and destroy. The shepherd comes to save us from that. The shepherd comes to save us from all that which is death. Read this in light of what we've just learned of idolatry. You become what you behold. Idols are nothing. Those who worship them become like them. Nothing is nothing other than death. Shorter catechism. Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. God's good and gracious law. God's law, which is a the perfect reflection of his good and righteous uh, character. Sin is to reject that law, and in rejecting that law, sin is to reject him. Right? Sin is the rejection of God himself. But what are the first two commandments of that good law? No other gods before me, no idols. Right? Idolatry is sin. It is breaking of the first two commandments of the law. It is the breaking of the one great summary commandment of the law that Christ gives us. The law commands, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's a command. You see how related that is to is Christ precious to you? Is Christ the most precious thing to you? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And we know that the wages of sin is death. And so idolatry, any idolatry, is breaking the first two commandments of uh, the law. It is breaking the one great summary commandment. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, you break the law, you get death. You reject the God of life, you get death. That's how idols or anything are thieves and robbers, stealing. 
and killing and destroying. And that is what the good shepherd, the door, has come to save us from. Note that he says in verse 9, those who enter through me will be saved. What does that mean? What exactly does he mean by saved? Verse 10. Look at the second half of verse 10. What one commentator claims is the greatest explanation for Christ's coming. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And here's why it's so unfortunate and artificial to break up the text here. A good preacher would be able to do this whole text and wouldn't break up the text. So, oh, sorry. But here's why I wanted to read the whole thing again. But what's coming is so good that we've got to give it a whole week next week. But we can't make sense of this coming that we may have life. Coming that we, we become what we behold idolaters. His coming that we, nothing because we gave ourselves to nothing. We who are false because we gave ourselves to that which is false. We who are dead because we gave our attention and affection to that which is death. How could this good shepherd come to give us dead, idolatrous sinners life? Five times he tells us. He won't let us miss it. He drills it into our brains. Repetition, 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 repetition. Is that too much? That's how many times he tells us. Look at this. Look at the text. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Well, what? Why? What is it about you that makes you good? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. Look at verse 17. I lay down my life. Look at verse 18. I lay it down. Look at 18 again. Because he says it again. I lay it down. What are you telling us, Jesus? Uh, what did you, the good shepherd, come to do? It's there. I came to die. Five times. That's the good shepherd. That's the door. That's how you find abundant life. That's how you enter through him. You enter through his death. The good shepherd came that we may have life. The door is death. The door is his death. You enter through believing and receiving his death. You enter through seeing him for who he is, for, for treasuring him, for what he has done. Is Christ precious to you? If all this is true, point two followed by point three, how could he not be precious to us? He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is God who lays down his life for man. He is holiness who lays down his life for sinners. He is life who takes on death to give the dead abundant life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the one thing that you most need. You need a solution to your sin and death problem. Christ is the only way in because he is the only solution to your sin and death problem. Listen, you know that you have a sin and death problem. I know that I have a sin and death problem. I just, deep down, we all know this. We all know, we all have some sort of standard, and we all know that we utterly fail to live up uh, to that standard. I don't have to argue with you that you are not a good person, and that I am not a good person. We have a sin and death problem that separates us from this God of perfect goodness. This is the preciousness and the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Christ as he is the only one who has done something about that sin and death problem by taking on that sin and death and dying in our place so that we could live. The we of point number two, the idolaters, the nothing given everything, the false given truth, the dead given life. Is Christ precious to you? Have you believed and received? Now, I'm not asking you if you just believe some stuff about Jesus. I'm done with that. I, I, I'm not asking that. I'm not asking if you come to church sometimes. I'm not asking if you like the idea of not going to hell. Everyone likes the idea of not going to hell. I'm asking, is Christ precious to you? Do you love Christ? For he is abundant life. Remember, that, that's been one of the main themes of this whole first part of John. We're drawing to the close of the first part of the book with chapter 12. But again and again, from the beginning, starting in 1 verse 4, we saw in him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
as the very God of life, in saving us from our sin, in saying that he came, that we may have life and have it abundantly, he is ultimately saying that he came that we may have him and have him abundantly, for he is life. The promise of abundant life is not the promise of abundant stuff. The promise of abundant life is not the promise of abundant ease. Luke 21, 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions or comfort or ease. You cannot buy a satisfied soul, but you can find it in the Savior and Satisfier of your soul. You were made for him. You rejected him. Christ has come to restore you to him, to the one who can uh, satisfy your soul. Augustine's wonderful phrase, 1,600 years ago, if only we could believe this, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do you have a restless heart? Ultimately, then, it can only be become you're still struggling to find your rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are dead until they find their life in you and with you. I've told you a couple of times that I'm obsessed with Psalm 16 right now. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. Life, presence. In that presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, Next week, we'll finally get to John 10. Verse 11, maybe only verse 11, we'll see. Uh, We finally get to I am the good shepherd. Thus next week, we're going to finally get to Psalm 23 in detail. Uh, Psalm 23, is is, it's the psalm of the contented life, the, the satisfied life, the abundant life. More next time, but I want to whet your appetite with the end of Psalm 23. What is the conclusion of all this good shepherding? What is the last thing that David says? Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sure. Confidence. Right? I, I love that. The verb follow there in the Hebrew it could actually be translated a lot more strongly. It's often translated as chase, pursue, hunt, a not let out of sight. That's what God's goodness and mercy does for us. Chases us, pursues us, hunts us, haunts us. People pursue happiness. Happiness pursues God's people. Abundant life is the light of God's, is the lot of God's people because they have God Himself. For you are with me, David says. And it is this God Himself who is abundant life. Do you believe this? Not that you'll find life in your circumstances changing, not that things will get easier or better, or you'll get. Um, a better job or more money or that relationship problem will be solved or better work or whatever the thing is. Do you believe that abundant life is found apart from all of those things? Whatever change may come and that it's not wrong to desire to come. But do you believe that it's ultimately only found in Him? Remember, we become what we behold. We look like what we look at. If you struggle at times with the feeling of meaninglessness, it could be that you are giving much of your time and attention to that which is meaningless. If you struggle with feeling worthless, maybe it's because you are filling your mind with that which is worthless. What if you tried filling your mind with that which is priceless, precious? What if you gave your time and attention to that which is eternally meaningful? Is Christ precious to you? Honestly, If not, then I encourage you to give him a try. How? Give yourself and your attention and your affection to him by giving yourself to his word. We read Thursday night from Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I challenge you to look closer. I challenge you to look longer. Give yourself repeatedly to the word of life in which is found the Christ of life and ask the spirit of life to give you the eyes to see him in all his glory and grace and to make him precious to you. My concern is that few of us really understand what it means to be satisfied in Christ and to truly find rest and delight and joy and peace and life in him. You know, I know that I'm still learning. You know, don't hear this as like, I've arrived and you haven't. No. 
I'm struggling to do that. I'm aware of my struggles in this area. And so I'm desirous for us together to give ourselves uh, and ask God uh, to show us Christ, as we just said, to make him precious in our eyes. He is the only way, and it is a good way because it is the way to abundant life. For he is abundant life, and he is what we get. And he is infinitely and eternally precious. It was funny, I'll close with this, providential, I guess, but after I had written my introduction to this sermon, using Spurgeon on the preciousness of Christ, I'm going to put the Whitmans on the spot here, I was, Pastor Fred was here with us last week, he had his book, I read the book, I think I finished it on Wednesday night or Thursday. At the very end, uh, he includes an image, like a snapshot, of the handwritten testimony of his own father, uh, George Whitman, which was written in 1943. This is what George writes back in 1943. He talks at the beginning of kind of the, the testimony about uh, having no hope and no peace, about how nothing could satisfy his hungry heart. And then he writes this. He says, so tonight I am praising God that I have found Christ precious. He wrote that in 1943. And he wrote it as capital P, precious. And as I went back through the letter. It seems that he preferred to capitalize words that he directly connects to Christ. And so Christ is capital P, precious. Capital S is serving capital Christ. Uh, Christ is capital J, joy. He gets it. He got it. By the grace of God, he found Christ precious to him. Christ is precious because Christ is life. May you, may we, find our life in him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we ask again that you would show us Christ. We ask that you would begin or continue the process of removing those idols from our hearts that compete for our attention and for our affection. Father, reveal those things to us as thieves and robbers. Reveal to us that which draws us away from the Christ who is life. Father, I ask simply that you would make Christ precious to us. Help us to see ourselves in our sin. Help us to see what we truly, truly and freely chose and justly deserved because of our sin. And then, Father, show us your great grace and mercy in sending us Christ that we may have life in him, having that life that required his death. Father, show us his preciousness there as Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins. Father, show us Christ and help us to love him. We ask and we pray this only in his name. Amen. Amen.